the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. These are Jesus' words in John chapter 10, verse 10. And what a contrast. Satan destroys, whereas Jesus gives abundant life. And nowhere in the scripture are the blessings of Jesus and the destruction caused by Satan better illustrated than here in Mark chapter 5. Perhaps in modern society, Satan acts in more sophisticated ways. But understand, his intentions have always been the same. To steal, to kill, and to destroy. Satan wants to ruin lives. Jesus wants to redeem lives. And our Lord encounters his enemy here in verse 1. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. Now, the country of the Gadarenes was on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was across the lake from where the disciples had set sail the previous day. Recall a few hours earlier, Jesus had calmed a storm on the sea. In chapter 4, verse 39, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And notice, he rebuked the wind. This is what you do to a demon. You rebuke him. You see, I believe the storm at sea was more than just a meteorological phenomena. It was a spiritual attack. The devil didn't want Jesus coming to Gadara, for he had a stronghold. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. Now, these tombs were off limits to Jews, and they were seen as a haunt for demons. This demon-possessed man spent his days wandering around in a limestone graveyard. And no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. The demons inside this man could not be restrained. They welded supernatural strength, and they kept people away who might want to try to help this man. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. The demons were driving this man stark raving mad. He turned into a cutter. Self-mutilation was ruining his life. The townsfolks didn't know what to do with him, so what? They, they isolated him. They kind of sent him out to the tombs. Just gave up hope. Hopeless situation. I wonder how many patients in today's psychiatric hospitals have been treated the same. Certainly, there is such a thing as mental illness. But I also believe that some folks have been labeled mentally ill, have actually been misdiagnosed. More probably, they're demon-possessed. And sadly, rather than bring them to Jesus, like the Gadareans, we send them away. Our prisons, our hospitals have taken over for the tombs. Well, when this man saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Now, it seems that the voice 
inside the man was actually the voice of the demon speaking through the man rather than the man himself. For Jesus said to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then he asked him, what is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Apparently, the man was occupied by a nest of demons, a whole den of demons. A legion was a battalion of Roman troops made up of four to 6,000 soldiers. J. Vernon McGee translates verse 9, What is your name? And he said, Mob. Verse 10, Also he begged Jesus earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. On our trips to Israel, we visit the one spot on the eastern coastline of the Sea of Galilee where the steep slopes fall into the lake, where the mountains meet the water. And it's almost certain that it was here that Jesus met this demoniac. We're told, so all the demons begged him, saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And here we're given an interesting insight into the nature of demons. Understand, demons don't like to be disembodied spirits. They seek a body to inhabit. Understand, both the Holy Spirit and demonic spirits want to dwell in people. The Holy Spirit wants to live in you, to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. Whereas Satan... The unholy spirit wants to live in you to deform God's image in you. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 43, Jesus said, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. Demons want a house to inhabit. They take up residence in humans. But here's the good news. If you're a Christian, a demon can't have your body. The Bible teaches that it is impossible for you to be inhabited by a demon. God's Spirit lives in you. And the Holy Spirit never bunks with evil spirits, trust me. 2 Corinthians 6 asks the question, What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial, that is Satan? God's spirit never hangs out with evil spirits. Now you might get hassled by a demon, attacked perhaps, maybe oppressed by a demon, but never possessed by a demon. If you're a follower of Jesus and a demon walks by you, he sees a no vacancy on the shingle of your heart. Yet if you're not a Christian tonight, man, you're vulnerable. Your body was made to be inhabited by God's Spirit, yet Satan wants to be like God. That's why if you spurn God's grace, if you resist God's will, evil spirits can take up residence in you. You see, demons want a body, preferably a human body, but any body is better than no body. So that's why they asked Jesus to send them into the herd of swine. And at once, Jesus gave them permission Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. 
You might say after leaving the man, these demons went hog wild. They, They really pigged out. They started hamming it up. You could actually call this the case of the deviled ham. We're on a roll. You're right. I'm not done. On a serious note, though, this does illustrate the sinfulness of man. Understand, this fellow tolerated the presence of the demons for years whereas the pigs couldn't handle them for a few minutes. That's how corrupt this man was. As soon as the demons entered him, the hogs go nuts, and they run into the lake. You you could say they committed suicide. (laughs) I saved the best to last. Hey, 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 but whatever you do, don't feel sorry for these pigs. Because after they drowned, I'm sure you know where they went. To hog heaven, of course. Yeah, I'm done. Now, I'll tell you a true story. On one of our trips to Israel, we'd spent the whole day up in the Golan Heights above the Sea of Galilee. We're on the tour bus. We're returning down the road that kind of intersects in the land of Gadara. Suddenly, a wild boar comes out of the bushes, runs right in front of our tour bus, kind of jumps up and hits the bumper of the tour bus, falls back, rolls over into the street, jumps back up and runs off into the bushes. We're sitting there watching the whole thing. We're in Gadara where this story took place. I turned to the tour guide and I said, man, how did you arrange that? You got some real connections, man. It was wild to have that happen right there on the very, in the, at the site, near the site of this very story. I'll never forget it. Back to the text, verse 14. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Now the workers who fed the swine, they reported this to the townspeople. Well, then they came to Jesus, and they saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind. And I love this, man. Notice the three ways that Jesus liberated and changed this man's life. The man is now sitting. He's no longer thrashing and wandering in the tombs. He's at rest. He's at peace. He's finally at home with Jesus. Can't you just feel the relief in this man's life? He's now clothed. Luke tells us that he had been naked. His nakedness had revealed his lack of shame. He had been oblivious to his sin. The fact that he's now clothed indicates that he now has a sense of right and wrong. His conscience has returned to him. And he's in his right mind. Isn't that beautiful? All the symptoms that we normally associate with mental illness, paranoia and self-mutilation and delusions and manic episodes and depressions and violence, all of this vanishes all of a sudden. It's replaced by God's amazing peace. This is the kind of work that Jesus can do in a person's life. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This was an obvious miracle. But note the reaction of the townspeople when they see this transformation. Verse 15 tells us, they were afraid. Can you imagine? And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed. 
and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. Rather than appreciate the deliverance, perhaps they were upset that Jesus had destroyed 2,000 swine. I'm not sure. Oh man, you've crippled the local economy. The city fathers of Gadara thought more of their money than this man's life. Well, Jesus doesn't stay where he's not wanted. Notice that. And so, when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. Now, the Decapolis was the region east of the Sea of Galilee. It consisted of ten cities. Deca means ten. Polis means city. Decapolis, ten cities. And these were Gentile cities. Understand, this was the Gentile side of the lake, in contrast to Capernaum, which was the Jewish side of the lake. This is why they were raising swine. This was Gentile territory. Now, here the delivered man, he wants to go with Jesus. But Jesus knew his witness would be far more powerful among people who were familiar with his past. In fact, early church history recounts a group of Christians who met on the eastern shore of this lake, probably the result of this former demoniac's witness. And this is so applicable to us. The first place to shine your light is among those who shared your darkness. The folks who saw your pain are often the ones who most appreciate your healing. Imagine this man walking down Main Street in Gadara clothed in his right mind. What an amazing testimony. Sometimes following Jesus begins with going home. Notice verse 21. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, back to the Jewish side in Capernaum, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. Now he's back on the Jewish side of the lake, and he's confronted by the ruler of the synagogue. Understand, this was the most respected man in the community. He was a religious and civic leader. Jairus was powerful and privileged. But notice what he does to Jesus. When he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed. And she will live. I got a little daughter. (laughs) She's big now. She was little once. She's always be my little daughter. And I know how I feel about her. You know, few situations in life will bring a man to his knees faster than sickness in a child. This man's princess was dying. Jairus was desperate. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. I mean, the crowd was pressing in from all sides, pawing on Jesus as he tried to make his way and push his way through the crowd. Now, a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. Now, before we go any further, I want you to notice a contrast here. 
Jump ahead to verse 42, and you discover that Jairus' daughter was 12 years old. So for the same length of time, 12 years, for the same length of time that Jairus and his daughter had been going on daddy-daughter dates together, and had been playing Barbies, and had been eating ice cream at Brewster's, and dreaming of their future, for those same 12 years, this woman, notice she's not even named. She's been hemorrhaging and suffering and bleeding. Now her disease, first of all, had cost her spiritually. An issue of blood like this, this hemorrhaging, made her ineligible for worship in the temple. She'd been ostracized from worshiping God, even from socializing with the community. And it had also cost her financially. Verse 26 says that she had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. The doctors were abusing this gal. She had wiped out her 401k. She'd spent all her savings on doctors who failed to relieve her ailment. It's amazing the contrast here. Jairus is a prominent man. This woman isn't even named. Jairus is wealthy. This woman is poor. Jairus is a leader of the synagogue. This woman wasn't even allowed to enter the synagogue. For 12 years, Jairus had lived a, a merry life. For 12 years, this woman had lived a miserable life. The only commonality they now share is their faith in Jesus. Verse 27. Now, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. This woman believed that one touch of Jesus' robe would heal her. And so she pressed in. She reached up. And with a fistful of faith, she grabbed the hem of his robe. And we're told what happened. Immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up. She stopped hemorrhaging immediately. And she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. She knew it. She knew he should be healed. Now realize, this woman's faith was actually mixed with superstition. The ancients believed that garments of a holy man contained virtue in and of themselves. The healing would come from the garment itself. Perhaps this was part of her belief. But she also believed in Jesus. And so she looks through her superstition and she has faith. Sometimes faith gets mixed in with other things. He calls this woman out of the crowd. By the way, he's later going to straighten out her superstition. But for the moment, he calls this woman out of the crowd. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, he knew what had happened too. He turned around in the crowd and he said, who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging you and you say, who touched me? Hundreds of people were around. A whole crowd of people were touching. They were pressing and pawing over Jesus. Yet here's a wonderful truth. Don't miss this. The love of Jesus is so personal. It's so intimate. Understand, his love is tailored for each one of us. Here's a great quote. He loves each one of us as if there were only one of us to love. 
This is our Lord. This woman is never named, but Jesus knew her name. He loved her with a special and with a specific love. It's interesting. Though she was anonymous when she touched Jesus and was healed, he refused to let her remain anonymous. For he now calls her out of the crowd. Jesus challenges this woman to go public with her faith. In fact, even today, he wants secret saints to become public witnesses. God's forgiveness, like this woman's healing, costs us nothing. But once we receive it, Jesus wants us as recipients to step out and to stand up for what he's done. And so verse 32 tells us, Jesus looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And this is where Jesus explains to her that the healing wasn't due to his robe, but to her faith. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. It's no superstition. Your faith is what did it. That's what made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. The key was her faith. Today, if you're miserable, (laughs) if you've wasted time and money and energy on silly cures, if you've been looking for answers in all the wrong places, reach out to Jesus with a fistful of faith. Touch the hem of his garment, and your bleeding will stop. But in that same moment, while Jesus was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house and said, Oh, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Again, notice the contrast here. In an instant, the woman's 12 years of misery turns into joy, while a girl's 12 years of joy suddenly turns into grief. And life is like that, isn't it? You never know what a day might bring. Life is full of surprising twists and turns. Verse 36, Well, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. Now realize the Jews hired professional mourners to weep and wail over their dead. They wanted to create an expression of grief. There were professionals who did this service for you. History tells us that even the poorest family would hire two minstrels, two flautists, and one screamer. Jairus was a wealthy man, so he probably hired more than that, understand. When Jesus came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. You know, sleep is the word used in 1 Corinthians 15 to describe the bodies of those Christians waiting for the resurrection. You know, at death, our spirit goes to be with Jesus, whereas our bodies occupy the grave. In essence, our bodies are asleep waiting for Jesus to return and resurrect us and reunite us with our spirits. Of course, these mourners were familiar with death. And in their minds, this little girl was a goner. Thus, in verse 40, they ridiculed him. Imagine that. They laughed at the king of kings. They mocked the resurrection and the life. Jesus is going to get the last laugh, trust me. 
But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Now, I want you to notice this. It's so important. Before Jesus works a miracle, he first puts out the mockers. Before Jesus works a miracle, he first puts out the mockers. Now, sometimes the mockers are cynical people, people around you. At other times, the mockers are our own cynical, negative, doubting thoughts. But Jesus shows that miracles most often happen in the atmosphere of faith and praise. You've got to put out the mockers if you want a miracle. Miracles happen once you get rid of the mockers. Then Jesus took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumai, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. Even death was a minor technicality for Jesus. And if Jesus can raise the dead, let's believe him for the miracle you need tonight. What do you say? Verse 43, but Jesus commanded them strictly that they should, that they should, that no one should know it and said that something should be given her to eat. And I love this. I love this combination. This is so cool. Even a miracle doesn't replace a need for a bowl of chicken noodle soup. Little girl still needs some food on her stomach. So he said, give her, give her something to eat. And notice the near impossible command. You know, the real miracle in this thing would have been for them to really keep their mouth shut and not tell anybody about this. I mean, this is like an impossible command Jesus gives them. Tell no one. Are you kidding me? My little girl, my princess has been resurrected from the dead and I'm supposed to sit on this? You gotta be kidding. We're gonna find out Jesus was concerned about crowd control. This, this was a real problem for him at this point. People were crowding around him. This was dangerous. And that's why he wanted them to downplay his miracles rather than headline them. It was only increasing the crowds. Which brings us to chapter 6. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. That's a 22-mile walk from Capernaum down to Nazareth. But it's always downhill when you're headed home. The last few months had been a whirlwind of busyness for Jesus. His newfound notoriety had been stressful. Crowds were coming all around him. He was attracting the masses. I'm sure he was excited about a break. He wanted to spend some time hanging out with his brothers, maybe see his mom. And especially he wanted to worship in the synagogue in which he had been raised. And when the synagogue had come, and when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. Of course, they asked Jesus to do the teaching that Sabbath. Everyone wanted to know his intentions. Who did he really claim to be? And many were hearing him, who were hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? Jesus impressed them with his wisdom and his command of the scriptures. And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? Tecton is the word. 
It's the root word from which we get our word technical. This is the Greek term here translated carpenter. See, a tecton was a technical carpenter. In contrast to framing houses, the tecton made furniture or tools. He was a detailed craftsman. This is what Jesus was. There's a legend that says that Jesus, his specialty was wooden yokes. A wooden harness had to be an exact fit or it would rub or irritate the animal. This added meaning to Jesus' words, my yoke is easy. The legend has it that a sign hung over Jesus' carpenter shop. It read, the best fitting yokes made here. The yokes Jesus crafted were perfect fits, and they still are. You know, when Jesus asks you to climb into his harness and submit your life to his will, it is a perfect fit. What he calls you to do, you find he's already equipped you to do. Along with the task comes a love for that task. If today you're under a heavy burden, it didn't come from Jesus. Maybe the people around you, but not Jesus. His burden is light. His yoke is easy. But they not only called Jesus the carpenter, notice they called him the son of Mary. And this was an insult, not a compliment. In ancient times, Israel, in ancient Israel, men were referred to by their patriarch's name. Even if the father was deceased, they were the son of their father. But here they're called, they call Jesus the son of Mary. In doing so, they were questioning his parentage. Remember, this is Jesus' hometown. And the hometown crowd remembered the scandal surrounding his birth. That Mary had turned up pregnant before her marriage to Joseph. And few people in town believed her explanation of a miracle. By calling Jesus the son of Mary, the Nazarenes were saying, we don't know who his father was. So they call him the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and, not his, and are not his sisters here with us? Sisters, plural. Now, the Roman Catholics teach that Mary remained a virgin for the rest of her life. They call it her perpetual virginity. I think perpetual fertility is more like it. Because here we learn that after Jesus was born, Mary had a minimum of six more kids, four boys, and at least two girls. But here's the point. We're told in verse 3, and they were offended at him. They thought Jesus' claim to be anything more than the neighborhood homeboy was sheer scandalous. They rejected him as the Messiah. See, here's the problem. The men of Nazareth were too proud to acknowledge that one of their own was more than a peer. Oh, we played in the sandbox with this guy. How can he be so special? He's just one of us. See, it's true. Familiarity breeds contempt. The more familiar you are with a person, the more likely he or she is to be taken for granted. Notice verse 4. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country among his own relatives, and in his own house. What a disappointment this had to be to Jesus. He came home looking for affirmation. Instead, he ended up with rejection. And maybe you've had a similar experience. 
Your commitment to Jesus has been frowned on by your homeboys. You hope they would be accepting. Instead, they've rolled their eyes. They've turned up their nose at you. They've been skeptical, if not outright rejected you. Well, at least you're in good company. That's how they treated Jesus. Don't be surprised if it happens to us. As he said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. If that's happened to you, you're going to have to rewind their respect another way. Verse 5 is one of the saddest statements in the Bible. Now, he could not, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. That was a pretty good deal, I would imagine, if you were one of them. But he couldn't do any great miracles there because of their unbelief. Now remember, this was Jesus' own hometown. If he worked a miracle anywhere, I'm sure he wanted it to be here among his own friends and family. But he was limited by what? By their unbelief. Lois Cheney, she writes a probing poem inspired by this episode. Follow along with me. There was a place where the unbelief was so great that Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, could not heal and help, and so he left them. Has anyone seen Jesus lately? Has Jesus been seen in your life lately? Friends, he can do amazing works, but the prerequisite is always faith. Verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. Two times in Scripture we're told that Jesus marveled. Here at the unbelief of the Nazarenes and in Luke 7 over the faith of a Roman centurion. You remember the centurion believed that Jesus could heal his servant with just a word. Jesus marveled at a Gentile's faith and at the Jews' unbelief. The question is, does he marvel at our faith or the lack thereof? Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. First circuit preacher. And he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. Jesus begins to delegate to his disciples. He can only do so much himself, only go so many places. And so he sends his disciples out two by two, notice. Hey, two by two, it's a good idea. Batman and Robin. Andy and Barney. Mandolin and Maris. Starsky and Hutch. God uses dynamic duos. When you serve the Lord, take a pal. One of you can pray while the other one talks. You can watch each other's back. It proves good fruit always comes in pairs. In verse 8, Jesus commanded them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. Now, he's not talking about an assistant pastor here or the CPA or bodyguard or something. It's amazing some preachers, I get so disgusted. Some preachers think they need an entourage wherever they go. They need a posse to minister somewhere. The staff Jesus is talking about here is a stick, not some pastoral posse. 
Also, no bag. Don't take a bag. Literally, a beggar's bag. Don't beg for funds. Hey, God's work done God's way will never lack God's support. Where God guides, he provides. you got to trust him. No bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. In other words, God's ministers need to travel light and live by faith. They need to be simple. Don't be burdened down with a lot of baggage in the ministry. Also, he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. I love this paraphrase of these verses. It says, don't think you need a lot of extra equipment for this. You are the equipment. No special appeals for funds. Keep it simple. And no luxury ends. Get a modest place and be content there until you leave. In short, kiss it, man. Keep it simple, saint. Kiss. That's the plan. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. If somebody rejects you, hey, if somebody at your office rejects you, your neighbor rejects you, hey, forget it, move on. Don't stand around feeling sorry for yourself while other folks need to be saved. Don't get bogged down in bitterness. Wipe the dust off your souls and move on to other souls. God will deal with the resistors. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. His disciples were now empowered by Jesus. Now King Herod heard of Jesus, for his name had become well known. This Herod was Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great, the one who murdered the children of Bethlehem. He said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. I'm sure this was his guilty conscience speaking. Antipas was complicit in the Baptist's murder. We're going to read about it in a minute. Others said it is Elijah, and others said it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, No, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. Remember, Jesus and John were cousins, and tradition says they had a striking resemblance. Herod here is haunted by John's memory, this man that he's murdered. Now, it's interesting, this Herod, he had wealth, he had power, he had luxury, but he was tormented. He was tortured by a guilty conscience. It's been said, a guilty conscience is the part of you that hurts when everything else feels good. A condemned conscience prohibits you from enjoying life. It's also been said, a bad conscience has a good memory. And this was always on Herod's mind. The next few verses recall his crime. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For he had married her. For John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now Herod Antipas, this was a seedy, immoral man. On a visit to Rome, he had fallen in love with his half-brother's wife, Herodias. He divorced his own wife, and he stole Herodias from his brother. By the way, she was not only his sister-in-law, she was also his niece. 
So add this all up, and the king was guilty of divorce, adultery, and incest. Herod had turned Israel's royal family into a soap opera. But John here calls him on the carpet. John was fearless. Intimidated by no one, John took, up, took on this ruthless king. He said, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And he must have said it in a very public fashion. Therefore, Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Now, in his own warped way, King Herod respected John the Baptist. Understand, this Herod was a politician. He based his decisions on the latest opinion poll. In contrast, John had integrity. These two men couldn't have been more opposite. And yet, despite Herod's admiration of John, Herodias hated the Baptist with a vengeance. She was a wicked, wily king who didn't like being publicly rebuked. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. Did you know there are only two birthdays mentioned in the Bible? Man, you've got to be careful about birthdays. Pharaoh's birthday, the baker was hung. Remember back the story of Joseph? Here, John the Baptist loses his head. Biblical birthdays are dangerous, man. I'm just telling you. And I hope you never have a birthday party like Herod's. This was a drunken orgy, man. This was a stag party. Verse 22, when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced. And understand, this wasn't like my granddaughter coming in and showing me her latest ballet steps. No, no, no. This was a strip tease. This was an immoral, seductive dance done before these men. Her name was Salome, by the way. Usually these seductive dances were performed by prostitutes. It was very rare for a princess, for a woman of social standing, to perform such a dance. But here Herodias gets his, puts her daughter up to doing this. And her dance pleased Herod and those who sat with him. The king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Now realize, Herod had an out. He had an out here. He promised the girl up to half his kingdom. All he had to say was that John was worth more than half his kingdom. But lust and pride warps your values. You throw away what's precious for a few empty sips of what's cheap. It's a terrible trade-off. Well, immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. How sad. 
What a way to get ahead. In essence, understand this. In essence, John lost his head so that Herod could save face. This is all about pride. Herod didn't want to break a promise and look bad in the eyes of the nobles. He should have buried his pride. Instead, they buried John. And this is similar to the choices people make every single day. What's more important to you? Doing right or looking good? Don't ever sacrifice your integrity for some popularity. We're told when his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. This flashback is now over. We now know why Herod was afraid of Jesus. When Mark returns to the disciples who had gone out two by two, they come back now in verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Now, it's true. If we don't learn to come apart, then we're going to come apart. Life stress and strain pulls at the seams of our lives. Hyper busyness is the plague of the modern world. It's been said the bow that's always bent ceases to shoot straight. This is why Jesus knew that time away, a break from the action, is essential to maintaining godly priorities. And listen, if this was true for Jesus, the perfect Son of God, how much more true is it for you? This is why he's given us a Sabbath. One day in seven, we can stop and rest and contemplate and reevaluate our lives. We need time away, time to rest, time to unwind and regroup. Verse 32, and so they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. The crowd beat them to the spot that they were headed in the boat. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. I can hear the disciples won't they leave us alone? But Jesus was moved with compassion. He saw people not as a nuisance, not as an obligation, but as lost sheep in desperately in need of a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things. Now when the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy them some bread, for they have nothing to eat. In the spring in Galilee, the sun sets around six o'clock in the evening. Thus it was about dinner time, and there were a lot of people to feed. Verse 44 tells us 5,000 men. Add the women and children, and there could have easily been 15,000 people. And there was no Chick-fil-A anywhere in sight. But Jesus answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. You know, there are times when Jesus lets us try to do it ourselves. Just to remind us how hopeless we are. 
I picture these men doing the math, you know, scratching their heads, writing on the back of their hand, doing the calculations, drawing the, man, oh, the, no, no, we, no, that won't, no, there's no way. No way. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? That, that, this is a little sarcasm there. They know there's nowhere around to purchase any bread, especially that much. Finally, Jesus does some math of his own, not new math, but miracle math. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. Notice Jesus tells the disciples to organize the people. It's going to make the distribution easier. Some super spiritual people often think that any effort on our part to organize will quench the work of the Holy Spirit. It sure didn't this day. It helped in the distribution. Here, organization is Jesus' idea. Spirit-led organization and a spirit-filled miracle often go hand in hand. Verse 41. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. This was a miracle of multiplication. The creator of matter rearranged the molecular structure of the fish and the bread. Jesus manipulates the molecules to make enough food for 5,000 plus hungry mouths. And notice the 12 baskets of leftovers. Notice there were 12. One basket of leftovers for each of the disciples. It was as if he was showing them and us that he is more than able to meet our needs in abundance. This story forever teaches us that if we give Jesus all we have, he can turn our meagerness into much. But here's the key. Before Jesus multiplies the fish and chips, notice what he does with them. For this is what he does with us. He took them. Then he blessed them. Then he broke them, and then he gave them. Jesus takes us out of the world. He blesses us with all spiritual blessings. He wants to give us to the hungry folks around us. But before we can be given, we first have to be broken. For if not, people will choke on our pride. We'll cause spiritual indigestion. Hungry people will break their teeth on our hardness and spit us out. This is why we have to be broken. We first have to be humbled. And Jesus has his ways. That obstinate boss. That financial crisis. Jesus can arrange the crushers. Brokenness isn't pleasant, but it is certainly necessary. Verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Notice Jesus was on the mountain, but he sees his men straining in the midst of the storm. And this is where Jesus is today. This is what's happening today. 
Hebrews tells us that he is seated next to God in the heavenly mountain on the right hand of God. And what is he doing, doing there? He's interceding for us. He's praying for us. He sees us in our storm, and he will come to us at just the right time. It was about the fourth watch of the night he came to them. Jesus waited until the darkest hour of the night. The fourth watch began at 3 a.m. Jesus came when they were utterly exhausted, after they'd been rowing for eight hours. And this is what Jesus does in our lives. He comes to us after the storm has beaten out of us all of our self-sufficiency. Jesus waits to appear until we're mentally befuddled and physically depleted. And that's when Jesus came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed by them. I mean, they weren't expecting him. I mean, his coming to them was a complete surprise. They almost missed him. In one moment, Jesus was nowhere to be found. But the next moment, he was now here. Notice the difference. Nowhere and now here. How quickly nowhere can become now here. Remember that in your storm. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Jesus calmed the storm from inside the boat before he calmed the storm at sea. And this is how he works in our lives. Jesus wants you and I to trust him in the midst of the storm before he gives us victory over the storm. He calms the storm in the boat before he calms the storm on the sea. And notice the reason for this trial. It's the reason for all our trials, quite frankly. Verse 52. For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. This episode was a means of softening their hearts. They didn't learn the first time, so Jesus reissued the test. You know, if you don't like the test, you ought to learn a lesson. Or he'll just keep reissuing the test. Now, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through that whole surrounding region, and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to where Wherever they heard he was, wherever he entered into villages, cities, or in the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. Needy people were flocking to Jesus, and we're among them. Tonight, why don't you reach out and touch the hem of his garment?